I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. Welcome to Radio vs. the Martians, the Black Ops episode. Yeah, this is something that if we fucking catch you with it, we will disavow you. <laughs> I don't know you, man. I, you never, I've never heard of you. This shit is off the books. <laughs> so this is something, if you're listening to this, this means you are one of our treasured Patreon subscribers. Yes, thank you so very much. It means that you've donated some amount of money, and you didn't expect this, and this is our gift to you, that you will be receiving, when we have them, intermittent lost, forgotten, or just otherwise archived episodes on topics of, I guess, any import. But uh, for this one specifically, Mike, why don't you lay out to our listeners why they haven't heard this before? Well, we had actually originally recorded this back in January of 2016, and it was originally going to be a fun size episode, but we found that while we were in the lead-up with Greg Hatcher to do our episode on Vigilante Justice, that... We were starting to tread on the toes of stuff that we first wanted to reveal during that actual episode. So we didn't want to shoot the gun. <laughs> I don't even know if that's a phrase. You didn't want to Paul Kinsey shoot it in the head. Yeah, we didn't want to we didn't want to blow our wad early, so to speak, because then we just have to cuddle during the panel. <laughs> and that in as much as we love cuddling with you guys, uh we really wanted to have each one of our panel episodes be as much a condensed everything of that topic as we sure. possibly can sure so uh with that said we want to thank you thank you thank you so much again subscribing yes. to us on patreon absolutely and uh we should make a final point of this is that this is available exclusively to our patreon backers um mike and i don't know this this may seem to see the light of day on our main feed sometime in the future but for now it's just yours so thank you very much thank you So uh, I guess that's the sort of point is who is the worst person in a piece of fiction that you've still managed to root for, where this person is morally a monster, but you can't really root against them or they're identifiable enough that you don't just want them to lose. Well, Darth Vader. Fuck, Darth Vader is the worst than Hitler. <laughs> he does help destroy a planet. Yeah, he helps eradicate an, an entire civilization. And you're still rooting, for, and, and by the end you're like, you know, it, it's it's okay, Darth. It's, it's everything that you did that was bad is fine. You're forgiven. Yes. You threw I the guy down the hole. I yeah. swear to God, I'm. I've often thought I'm the only guy that remembers that Darth Vader went into a room with Princess Leia and his weird little ticking torture machine. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, and that's his daughter. Yeah. And he, oh fuck, yeah. <laughs> that's true. The, the robot with a syringe on it. That's yeah. true. It's, you know, even my two and a half year old thinks that Darth Vader is a hero. Now he hasn't seen. He's got a cape. Uh, yeah, he does have a cape. He also likes Superman too. Um, no, but Darth Vader usually gets into sword battles, whereas Superman does save things. So he yeah. knows that at the very least. Darth Vader. I think for me, I did enjoy. I watch a lot of and read a lot of crime fiction. It's a genre I like, and almost by definition, the lead character in those stories is a bad person, and. Maybe they do a bad thing for a good reason at first, 
But it's always about that slow decay. I mean, Breaking Bad is a show that I, mm. I really love. Mm. But there was a point on Breaking Bad where I stopped rooting for Walter White again. I mean, I mm-hmm. actually started rooting against him that his uh, brother-in-law is the DEA agent who's trying to take this guy down and later finds out that it's his brother-in-law, and then it gets really personal. And <laughs> I was I was rooting for Hank. I was not yeah. rooting for Walter. And there was a point where the character became so bad that I just wanted to be taken down. And I think sometimes in crime fiction, you are given license to root for somebody or not hate them because you know that their takedown is inevitable and it's going to be part of the story. They're going to pay for this at the end of the story, so it's okay for me to root for them to escape now. Well, normally when you do that, when you set it up, you set it up such that the uh, the antagonist, the change that, that, what, that the antagonist is sort of uh, driven to ch- to change something by the kind of hidden schizophrenia of society, you know. I mean, I guess the Joker would be the best way to do that, right? The Joker, um, what motivates him is that there's something that's wrong with society, and he is there to to point out the joke, right? He's there to illustrate the joke. I've always usually, of- a, usually good bad guys exist because there's something broken about society that they can live in, and that their existence is owed to this like gaping wound in society. And uh, you you have to be kind of fascinated with exploring that fracture um, for the movie to exist, for well, the story I'm, to exist. Are you define the question a little bit? Are we talking about villains that we like, or are we talking about good guys that are horrible that we're no. still rooting for? <laughs> I'm going to say the latter. Is okay. It, oh, okay. Somebody who's the main character. Because oh, okay. really, to me, the gold standard of that guy is Jack Bauer on 24. Oh, wow. <laughs> Jack Bauer on 24. He's the villain that we root for? Is that what you're saying? Well, he yes. might as well be. <laughs> he violates every role of every rule of decent human behavior Jack Bauer will throw out the window because terrorists are coming. Yeah. Yeah. He is he is the human incarnation of Patriot Act paranoia. Yeah. He is he you know, he is a friend of mine had to stop watching 24 because she said it was torture porn. It is. Yeah. And, yeah. and um reason why I stopped watching Alias actually. I torture act- of the week. I actually have the exact same relationship your friend does with 24 and I've hinted at this a little bit on the show which was that it's yeah, we've been sh- threatening to do a oh. podcast on 24, and I don't know if it's ever going to come to the fruition. The person that's being threatened by that is me, because <laughs> I don't want to rewatch it again, is that 24 is one of those weird things that almost always art with a conservative bent is usually really fucking awful, but 24 is really well made. Mm-hmm. It does some of the best action I've ever seen on television. It does cliffhangers better than almost anything I've ever seen. It makes you want to marathon it when you're watching it on DVD. Mm. It always ends on a ticking clock, literally. And it always makes you want to immediately watch the next episode because you don't know what's going to happen next. The problem is is that it just papers over the fact that its main character gets worse and worse and worse and keeps using the literal ticking clock i have to stop the terrorists i've got i have to do this right now and it gets so cartoonishly bad to the point that in like season four there is a terrorist bad guy who is being protected from the hammer and tongs of jack bauer by a slimy amnesty international lawyer and they're actively mm. portraying, I think they call it Amnesty Global because they don't want to get sued. <laughs> 
But this guy is not letting Jack Bauer play, and he basically plays the same role as the mean old police captain who wants him to like respect the rights of other human beings that he's yeah. just setting on fire. Mm-hmm. It's just fucking horrible. And it was those moments where it was clear that this was sort of somebody sort of cynically saying, like, fuck you, hippie. This is what we got to do in the real world, even though the world of 24 is just as cartoonish as any superhero story. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's pure pulp fiction. And But the weird thing is that, to me, this is why it's fascinating to me, although really after the fifth season or so, they kind of lost me because they were so overboard but uh well aliens didn't come and uh take hum- the human race hostage did they no that's it's kind of like how many more nuclear devices can you detonate or potentially detonate it's got to go up to aliens after that yeah that, yeah that was the thing with him is that you know you get all these people in the real world saying we need people to be more like jack bauer it's like well look at the world of jack bauer yeah it's way less safe than anything we have in the well, real world uh, ctu is the single most incompetent anti-terror organization <laughs> ever to be licensed by the government to do anything ever and the the uh, idea that after the first season of 24 ctu would not be disbanded and under federal investigation for i don't know years <laughs> <laughs> It's um, insane. Because- every season there's a mole. Every season there's someone betraying. When they did the reunion not too long ago, there was, again, somebody at CTU was a mole that betrayed the entire organization. Easiest like- to infiltrate group in the entire world. <laughs> and there's always at least two or three hours where Jack Bauer goes rogue. And it's just like, yeah. this is not something that feels reliable. I don't want to put my tax dollars towards... This massive cell phone bill that's going up (laughs) with Jack Bauer in one scene, literally taking a lamp apart and torturing a guy. The guy is exonerated, so he didn't do it, so he just tortured this guy for no reason. Jack Bauer does not apologize. And then later, this guy helps Jack Bauer, and I'm like, no, I'm not going to help this fucking psycho. He just (laughs) electrocuted me, tied down to a chair. And it's like, can I at least get an I'm sorry? I mean, I don't expect him to make up for this, because how do you make up for the fact that I just have an experience that is going to haunt my nightmares for the rest of my life? And knowing that my own government did it, and that maybe that that 25 cents or whatever that I, I helped pay towards my property tax in this one little increment went towards the unwiring of that lamp to get me, that I paid for part of that. Um, that's nuts. There's and no way. And it's not even Jack Bauer's low point. No. His, he goes so much lower than that. There's a, I forget which season it was, but there's some sort of hostage situation where the penalty is you got to bring so-and-so down here from your division headquarters and shoot him in front of me. And and then I'll release the whatever, you know, let your daughter go or give you the code or I don't even remember what it was, but he actually does it. He brings the guy down and then, you know, and we're thinking, here comes the fake out. This is the 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 twist, the clever. I'm going to to outwit this this villain and we're all going to get him and he's going to lead us to the hostage. No, Bauer pulls out a gun, makes him go down on his knees and shoots him gangland style and he <laughs> falls forward on his face. That's the cliffhanger. It's like, oh my God, he fucking shot the guy. He, he, I think in season two, he actually beheads a guy <laughs> and actually mails the head to somebody as part of another deal. And it's like, no, no, this is not what good guys do. And that's what I really loved about uh, Captain America the Winter Soldier uh-huh. is it felt like, and I think you're the one who actually brought uh, this up yeah, to me, Casey, yeah. it feels like the anti-Jack Bauer. Oh, yeah. yeah. That there's a character who says, no, 
I'm not willing to be a fucking monster to save the day. And mm-hmm. that it's quite possible to respect the rights of these things that we attach electrodes to every so often and acknowledge that they're human beings who have like a mom and a regular life and don't just exist in the moment that they have something that I want them to tell me. And if they're not willing to, I'm just going to start hitting their fingers with a hammer. <laughs> That's fucking crazy. Yeah. And it's one thing. I mean, we all enjoy the kind of crazy vigilante fiction yeah. that comes out there with a character like, say, the, the Punisher, Mac Bolin, or Dirty Harry. But, but there's always the hand wave moment where it's acknowledged that these are damaged individuals. Yeah. The Punisher is coming from a place of tragedy. Yeah. Mac Bolin is yeah. coming from a place of tragedy. He's a burned out husk of a human whose only redeeming quality is that he's going to take his personal damage and his his tragedy and channel it into making society a better place. Jack Bauer is none of those things. Jack Bauer is a functioning government employee. It's his job to be horrible. And not only that, he gets congratulated for it. I yeah. mean, that's the thing is that he's not getting screamed at by a superior. He's not. He gets like a fucking medal on him. I mean, it's not the sort of thing like the Punisher. The Punisher is a fugitive that the mm-hmm. police will shoot him on sight if they see him. He's, yeah. He is a criminal. Did, did either of you ever see Jack Reacher? No. So that was an interesting way where they took what was essentially a Jack Bauer-esque character. I mean, fuck, his name is Jack, for God's sakes. Um, it could but, be John. It could, this is true. It could be John. Um, but uh, so they 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 made basically a Jack Bauer character, a Superman, ex-military kind of covert guy. Um, but they make him a fugitive from the law, someone who intentionally sort of opts out. He just says, I'm not working for this anymore, and I'm going to live my life as this sort of like on the lamb ninja who only you're only going to know that I exist when I when I choose to step back into your world and tell you that I'm here. Um, but he does that out of principle because he doesn't he does not want to be complicit in stuff that's 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 bad. Even that you can do in a post 9-11 era. Right. Even Jack Reacher is in the firmly in the 20 teens. You know, I, I mm. want these people to be an outlaw if they do stuff yeah. like this. Yes. I, I want them to be somebody that is not. Uh, a branch of the government. I, it's like I I want a lone weirdo doing this stuff. What I don't want is a sense that the government does this to people because well, then you're just back in the running man again. Yeah, it's a it's a tacit endorsement of being horrible if you acknowledge that we need government employees to do this. And this is the argument that that politicians have all the time. Is that that's what I said about the Patriot Act, it's the idea that, no, no, the world is horrible. We need to be horrible back. Yeah. Well, there's also and, and, also something about uh, life imitating art, too, where, where Jack Bauer does, in some sense, help sell a particular narrative about reality, you know, about the about the legitimacy of the the ticking time bomb scenario, which is just a purely a fictional conceit. You it's know? absolutely a fictional. Lex Luthor does not exist in the real world. Right. Mm. Real right. sociopaths work for... You know, Goldman Sachs. Yeah, they're, they're busy making money. <laughs> Talking about they time bombs. They don't. They don't. Gold. They're hedge fund managers. They don't have time to rule the world from inside a volcano. They're making real money. <laughs> you know, in real life, psychos are not terribly bright. They're, you know, they're the 
dumbass shirtless guy that you see on cops that's beating the shit out of his wife. That's what real life sociopaths look like. And they end up in jail. Yeah. You know, it's only the sociopaths that that do money within the system because the guy at Goldman Sachs doesn't go to jail. Yeah. He doesn't have Jack Bauer cutting his fingers off trying to get the code. You know, no, but I'll tell you, there was a time when that guy was the villain in a lot of action movies and it was viscerally very satisfying. Oh, it is. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I do kind of love the corporate asshole bad guy. I mean, we got it in the movie Aliens. RoboCop. Be- RoboCop had yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of interesting ones because a lot of the movies from the 1980s do have this sense of being vaguely right wing, but occasionally you get someone like a Paul Verhoeven who's all about tricking people into cheering for terrible things or making <laughs> the movie that is almost like a condemnation of its own audience, which I really like. And that was one of the things I loved about having the chance to rewatch Starship Troopers recently, which is like, mm-hmm. oh, I fucking love this. Now, I hated this as a kid, but now I love it because I understand that it's all about, yay, go Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> We're such fucking monsters. Let's drill that thing in the face. <laughs> I love it. It's just straight out um, a, a commercial for fascism mm-hmm. done with a giant tongue planted in its cheek and knowing full well that a chunk of its audience is going to miss the satire and oh, cheer yeah. for these people. It's great. And just using people as human meat and saying, hey, if you come back and all your parts are still there, you'll be allowed to vote. <laughs> <laughs> it Wouldn't that be great? You can be a real citizen. But first, got to fight that fucking giant insect whose hands are made out of chainsaws. <laughs> Good luck, everybody. you got a pop gun. <laughs> you know, the weird thing about that is that it's based on Robert Heinlein's book. And Heinlein was, I don't, it's, it's massively oversimplifying Heinlein's work to call him right wing because he's not in the sense that we think of right wing. He's not jingoistic, but he, he believed very strongly in the military. He believed that military service was like a prerequisite to being a citizen. Right. Didn't he also in the book Heinlein have the instructor character Razjack, I guess, is the name of the instructor who Michael I just Ironside call him Michael plays. Ironside. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, he does, they do have an in-book refutation of the socialist economic system. Like, yeah. this is why it's wrong, kids. That's yeah. basically what Razjack is teaching his students. Well, Starship Troopers yeah. was written basically in a white fury after the Soviets launched Sputnik. He he was hmm. terrified that the Soviets were going to win the space race because Americans didn't have the backbone, <laughs> the, <laughs> the can-do pioneer spirit that this country was built on, that American myth that drove public policy throughout the, the 40s and 50s. Um, Heinlein was very much a guy that was of that generation, and sure. all of his fiction really reflects that, um, especially throughout the, the 50s. Um the Heinlein juveniles are hugely about can do, you know, a real man should be able to build a house, change a tire, fix an engine. And and adultery isn't wrong as long as everyone's happy with it, right? Yeah, but that, 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 came, that, that, that came later. Okay. That was in the 60s. Adultery that was, is, that was, you know, my young daughter, adultery is not all that bad. Yeah, it's it gets very weird. <laughs> yes. Later, Heinlein gets very weird yeah. sexually. But yeah. Uh, um, you know, you can divide his his work into like eras almost, and you can pretty much tell when he entered into the open marriage agreement because <laughs> suddenly it's all about selling that idea to middle America. Yeah, he was um, a little bit of a mini Ayn Rand there for a little bit of time. That um, is weird because when I look at a lot of science fiction, this is why 
a lot of really conservative science fiction nerdy type people really confuse me because I don't know what exactly they're getting out of most science fiction that they clearly enjoy. Like we've talked about this before, like Star Trek and almost everything is a metaphor for why we shouldn't be racist, why murdering each other is bad, why we should defend the weak, why we shouldn't kill somebody because they're different. And, you know, telling us to be more tolerant and more caring and more decent and that we want the sort of United Federation of Planets world that it was all about saying, hey, look how nice stuff we could have if we would just stop being racist, murdering assholes. And I wonder what they get oftentimes if you're really right wing in reading and enjoying that stuff, because you almost have to turn almost all of the themes and messages off. Are they not receiving it or are they just rejecting it? And I just don't get it. Um, I don't either. I, but on the other hand, I ask that question of myself every time I put down a, like a Mac Mullen executioner novel and think, wow, I really enjoyed that. And that was <laughs> about terrible people doing terrible things. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to live in that world, but I always enjoy those books. And the, you know, who the hell knows? I never understood how so many science fiction fans could be that conservative in the first place, especially in the anywhere. The science fiction fandom was founded by a bunch of pipe smoking old guys in tweed and bow ties mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. were, you know, very much Luddites in terms of of social freedom, civil rights. Sure. Um the the Isaac Asimov was famously afraid to ever set foot on an airplane. Huh. You know, all these guys that were writing about, you know, the the far reaching extrapolations of, of human society and human engineering and, and the things that we're capable of were absolutely Yeah, you guys run along and have a good time, grandpa will just stay home. You know, that was kind of their <laughs> personal lives and I, I've never understood that. There was a huge conflict in the sixties when old guard science fiction kind of came up against all these young Turk guys like, you know, Ellison and Silverberg and William Nolan writing what they called new wave science fiction, where they really didn't want it to be about the guy in the spaceship with all the rivets. They were much more about extrapolating, you know, weird alien sexual rituals. And, and uh, <laughs> Robert you know. Silverberg there. Well, uh, I was thinking of Philip Jose Farmer and the Lovers, oh, which was oh. a story that was very famously difficult for him to get into print at all. It was about a man having an affair with an alien who had different sexual organs. And That's a legit sci-fi premise. It is a legit sci-fi <laughs> premise. And if you're if you're if the mission statement of your genre is prediction, extrapolation, satire and examination of human society, mm -hmm. then you're you're by definition going to have to quote go there. Right. And famously the field has had a terrible time actually doing it. Hmm. That's and the crazy. guys that do it are often punished. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, because you don't – that's the thing. I think looking back on it is that everyone – and this is the thing that's kind of hard for me to accept is that I think of myself as a really progressive person. And I'm just thinking, what kind of a caveman am I going to look like to somebody 100 years from now? And you think the same thing. H.G. Wells was an incredibly racist guy who was an incredible pro um, progressive of his era. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That the, the, the very idea of War of the Worlds was basically about British imperialism. Mm -hmm. It was about how we would treat native people that we would just go in and exterminate them. We wouldn't treat them like people. We wouldn't respect their rights. 
We want what they have. We're just going to kill all of you and take it. And he was just using science fiction, like science fiction is best at, as a metaphor for something happening in the real world. And you extrapolate, well, what would it be like? What kind of questions, moral questions would we have if this new thing were brought into the world? I think part of it might just be the fact that there is some dissonance. There's some kind of cultural dissonance now that since we've been past the cultural revolution of the 60s, um, even when all fictions tended to move right during the 80s as it did, I mean, we were just spent an hour plus talking about um, a, a sort of social conscience sci-fi movie turning into uh, sort of a commentary on right-wing, you know, sensationalism. Um, I think it everything ended up moving right and uh, simply to survive, to continue to be adapted. I think that um, the, this is where I see the space marine thing sort of coming out. For whatever reason, even some great sci-fi books, uh, um, I I'm just started reading, actually just started reading Ian Banks. I, I admit that I have not re- read the culture culture series. Um, even then, there's a little bit of like, well, you got to have a space marine. You got to have a fucking badass guy who's a space marine who doesn't care about you know dispatching people on his way, and he's awesome because he can master all the ways to stealthily kill people. Essentially, um, that was not that was not always the uh, the the usual protagonist for a sci-fi book. Oftentimes, the protagonist was a scientist. Someone it's, who's a skeptic of some sort or another. That you know? was the weird thing is that we can look at the modern popularity of the space marine trope going back to the movie Aliens. Mm-hmm. But that's where they became popular again coming into the modern era. But the weird thing with Aliens is it isn't a celebration of the space marines. No. It's about how the space marines largely failed. As big and macho and badass as we are, um, the people who save the day are regular people who are brave and don't have these incredible guns. People who aren't caught up in this macho yeah. bullshit well, yeah, well, the sort spa- of exercise. The space marines have hubris, obviously, and that's the reason why they, they die. They 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 are too braggadocious, you know. And the most macho, bullshittier one of them all, you know, Hudson, as played by Bill Paxton, is the first one to fucking break when the shit hits the fan. He's the one who, game over, man, came over. <laughs> Let's what the fuck are we going to do now? And he's the one who has to get it like sort of slapped back into place. And he was the guy pretty much just kind of puffing his chest out like a peacock on the way down, basically essentially fellating every weapon that they had, talking about <laughs> how they are the ultimate badasses in the universe. And I kind of love that sort of that sort of uh, contrast. And that was the beautiful thing is that Ripley is the hero of the movie, a regular blue-collar worker who doesn't want to go into these situations. He's forced right. to go in these situations. And if anything, wants to end the situation just by nuking this from the orbit because, fuck it, I don't want to go down there. I don't get off on fighting these things. People die down there, and right. I'm not going to celebrate that. Movies have even changed since then because when you said that, all I was thinking of was Die Hard 1 versus whatever live free or die whatever the hell the last diehard movie was it stopped being about um badass finds himself in an unfortunate situation and has to just like deal and get out of it uh to it it goes straight from rambo one to rambo three like it becomes drop superhero invincible badass in this situation and have him blow his way out of it you know yeah it's a point where he basically goes from a regular cop guy a regular guy who's capable of great things but doesn't get an action hero scenario every day of his life <laughs> into essentially just being Jack Bauer again. Right, right. Yeah. He becomes a super spy, and that's not what I want from a Die Hard movie. The whole point of a Die Hard movie is this guy doesn't want to be in an action movie. He doesn't want to be here, and he's just like, oh, come on! I want to leave. I was only supposed to do this one thing, and these bad guys showed up and ruined 
everything. And and that is exactly why John Wick is an amazing movie. That's a um, really amazing movie for that. Why it was so refreshing, too, to see that in a movie. I'm a little bit nervous. They've already talked about making a sequel to John Wick. Yeah. They are, and I'm just sad. I'm just pretending that it doesn't exist the same way I pretend that there's only one Die Hard and it's the first one. <laughs> I just, in my head, you know, those other ones, they just aren't there. That unless I hear a yeah, unless I hear a sequel is made by James Cameron, I'm afraid to go near it. I'm you know, the hell of it is. I pretend they're not there, but I've seen all the sequels to Die Hard, <laughs> including right. the latest one in right. Russia, whatever it was, which was just they should have called it Die Hard, or they should have called it Physics Die Hard. <laughs> there, there should have been you know. <laughs> Oh, it's, it's John. John McClane defies all natural laws, and <laughs> you know, like what did he do? He went through like a, an acre of plate glass window and fell four stories, and got up and brushed himself off, or whatever the fuck that was. You know, know what? In the first movie, he runs across a floor full of glass, and he's crippled. He's yeah, he's right, in yeah. terrible shape. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Now and you can drop him out of a helicopter and he'll just bounce. He's basically right. turning into Jaws from the Bond movies where he's like <laughs> cartoonishly indestructible. And I don't want him to be cartoonishly indestructible. The fact that he was fallible and then he could be hurt is the strength of John McClane. Mm-hmm. That, again, you mentioned the fact that his feet are all fucked up in that movie. There's a scene with him crying, pulling glass out of his feet. And it's both the most vulnerable and most badass you almost ever see that character. Yeah. Because instead of being unfazed by it, it looks like it really hurts. And instead of going, yeah, he's badass, you start thinking, oh, man, what if I was doing that? Yeah. That's mm-hmm. what I would be doing. That would hurt. I don't even think I could pull glass out of my feet after the first piece. I'm just like, just give me a hospital. Just give me a hospital. I'm done. I don't want to fight bad guys anymore. <laughs> that's Well, see, but that's the, it kills me that I can't take Die Hard to school because it's just a classic structure. Wait, are, the, are there any it's tits in just, that movie? <clears throat> I think mm-hmm. there are on a, a wall on the wall. Oh. I think that what? you in, in oh, the it's, first it's Die Hard. rated R. If I take a rated R oh. movie to school, I, it's, it's just not worth all the paperwork. Yeah, but but out. new but new PG thirteen movies. There's plenty of violence in new thir- PG thirteen movies. So yeah, yeah. Just well, the about... hell of it is my kids have all seen it. Oh, sure, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> but, um, that's it's that... one of those stupid things I have to deal with at the school district level. But the thing of it is, in terms of writing instruction, it's almost a diagram. Mm-hmm. Of how to lay out an, an action movie and make your protagonist earn the victory and you escalate the situation. And the beautiful thing about Die Hard that none of the imitators and none of the sequels ever got hold of. All the imitation Die Hard movies like, you know, Sudden Death and Air Force One and all the the legion of imitators i think the latest one was lockout which was die hard in space yeah Luc Besson. um but uh the thing that john mcclain needs to do in the first die hard is not to beat the terrorists it's to fix things with his wife yeah and the terrorists are in the way right that's what gives this movie this huge emotional power and when he's pulling the glass out of his feet the reason that scene is so amazing is because he's learned his lesson he needs Holly to know that he's learned his lesson. He needs Holly to know that he's sorry, but he also knows he's never going to live long enough to tell her. Hmm. And you're just aching for him. Mm-hmm. 
That's the genius of that moment. And uh, none of the other movies got hold of that idea. None of them were... I mean, Die Hard 2, you know, the the was almost a satire of the first one. It's like, I can't believe we're going to spend every Christmas doing this. <laughs> <laughs> I love making that part of the dialogue, acknowledging the ridiculousness of a yeah. sequel in the dialogue of the sequel. Yeah. And then when you get to the third one, you that was the point where I'm just like, okay, you need to stop. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> um, just stop right here. Just waving it off the runway. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 There's just a point where you just got to know when to quit and I think the Aliens movies hit that where there's only so many times that Ripley can be thrown into a situation before fighting aliens is what she does it's yeah. not something that she gets forced to do it's not something she gets thrown into it's not a situation that falls in her lap it's just what she does for a living now and then she stops being the character that you want John McClane doesn't want to be there John McClane wants to do something else and terrorists show up and there's a limit to how many times you can do that. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was kind of thinking about, you know, all these franchises out there well, that don't it, need sequels. It's the difference between Jaws and Jaws for the Revenge, you know? <laughs> <laughs> a bridge too far. <laughs> it's like, how did we get to this point? You know, there is a worse universe we could be living in. Remember in Back to the Future 2, which also has a moment in 2015, they're up to Jaws 19. <laughs> yeah. So they could have gone much, much further. That We yeah. at least stopped at four. There are 15 Jaws movies <laughs> that we haven't had to see. Uh, I will bet you a year's pay against a stale bagel that at least 10 of them have been pitched. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes. How many of them have Vin Diesel in there? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. There would have to be one where um, it's Jaws. Because if you get further enough in any series of movies, let's say Jaws versus The Rock in space. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's a space shark. Of course, just genetically alter a killing machine to make it really smart and unstoppable because science. <laughs> and, oh, my God, it's gone free. Well, what did you expect was going to happen? Why did you do that? They made a self-aware shark. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my oh. God. So, yeah. Well, sequels, though, I, my my brain is being, my, my heart actually is being twisted around because of the forthcoming Dennis Villanueva Blade Runner sequel. Um, mm. still, st- I, my, I stand by my statement before, which is that I think it has the, runs the biggest risk of polluting what was original and great about the first movie by unnecessarily extending the story and the universe beyond what it needs to, to have told that story. However, Dennis Villanueva is a incredibly capable filmmaker. He's not a Josh Trank. He's not a McG. You know, he's he's not even he's not even a uh, a Justin Lin like the guy who's doing the uh, Star Trek Beyond, like one of the new Star Trek movies. He's not someone who's going to come at this from a um, we're gonna like an iRobot, not gonna make it an iRobot. You know, which is I think what the worst thing that could possibly happen. But also, there's the problem with polluting the character and or bringing a uh, over-the-hill Harrison Ford back for no reason and therefore completely destroying the, the human uh, replicant duality of that character. Though it does oh. give us the, the possibility of seeing more footage of Harrison Ford at Comic-Con looking really uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I often wonder if Harrison Ford ever looks at himself in the mirror and says, I should never have taken the money. <laughs> he I could should... be building a deck somewhere. Yeah. I am because, you know, he, for a guy that clearly hates 
Holly, the Hollywood machine and fandom and the entire audience pleasing part of his chosen career, which is weird to me because most actors kind of bask in the attention somehow. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. a lot of these actors, you see them at Comic-Con and they look terrified, but they're kind of like, oh, look, they're friendly. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be eaten alive. The The classic Comic-Con moment for me, have you ever seen it? It's an, it's an extra on the Electra DVD. It's like Jennifer Garner cautiously waving in this taped announcement that she she made for San Diego Comic-Con sort of apologizing for her appearance in Daredevil and trying to promote her appearance in Electra by, you know, and the whole premise of this taped announcement is, please don't hate me. No. <laughs> please do not unleash your internet legions upon me. <laughs> the point where the you costume have... is red this time. Really, it is. Because clearly know. that was the problem with Daredevil. Is yeah. that Electra was wearing a black costume. Uh-huh. Oh, jeez. Um, yeah. Oh. And that's the thing that's weird about making her apologize, because if there's one person who doesn't have the authority to make the decisions about what the costume looks like and what the writing is, or is the actor. The actor doesn't do that. That's the, you know, the blaming of someone like, say, Ben Affleck for if, you know, his role as Batman doesn't turn out. It's not Ben Affleck's fault. He didn't write that. He didn't direct that. An actor doesn't get to choose what their character does. I've never understood that. About I mean, people hated Ben Affleck for years, and I really don't understand why. <laughs> He's been hated for years. Seriously. Why, yeah. are you hating, why are you hating on him now? Well, the... Um. the the internet is just always he's he's been an internet pinata for almost as long as he's been a household name and I've never understood why because he, he's not somebody like you know Halle Berry who went out and alienated all the X-Men fans by explaining that she didn't understand comics and the one time she tried to read one she couldn't because she couldn't figure out how to read it which hmm. you know actually makes sense if somebody handed Halle Berry an X-Men comic from the 90s it would have been incomprehensible <laughs> to her it was incomprehensible to most people. It was incomprehensible to anybody that wasn't steeped in 30 years of X-Men lore. And there's a kind of comic book literacy that comes with growing up on comics where you understand sure. that you have a, a caption that says, meanwhile, and a fist going into somebody's face. And that's like the subject and the predicate of a sentence. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the way comics work. And if you weren't raised on that, you don't know it. Well, that's so funny. I'm recalling um, from when we were doing the Watchmen panel for Radio vs. the Martians, and uh, Sam, who is a, our generous host and one of our frequent guests, was reading Watchmen, and he was someone who's clearly read lots of comic books. Even he was perplexed and confused at times at re trying to process the story through the medium of comic books because sometimes it's not all that clear. It's not like a book. It's not like watching a television show. Well, it's it's a language that you kind of have to yeah. learn. It, it literally, it is a language. You know, a light bulb does not materialize over my head in a puff of smoke when I have an idea. But in comics, we all know that that's what that means. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, in real life, speed lines do not follow my hand when I move it back right. and forth. You right. know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It really is a language. And uh, and Halle Berry was lambasted for essentially not knowing the language. But is it? But not like Ben Affleck. <laughs> That's eh, the thing. Yeah. Is it? Is it reasonable to expect somebody, a professional actor who appears in a genre thing like a comic book movie or a sci-fi TV series? Is it reasonable for us to expect them to be a diehard fan of the thing that they're no, in? No, but they do. 
they do. They when they appear at Comic Con, what fans all want them to do. Ryan Reynolds was the star of Green Lantern, which is a comic book movie that nobody really thought very much of. But he owned the room. You know why? Because he got up there and he recited Hal Jordan's oath. Because, you know, and nobody said, well, of course he knows it. He memorized it. He's an actor. He had to say it in his movie. No, he sold the illusion that he knew it by heart because he fucking loved Green Lantern. And that's what the room wanted from him. They wanted him to love Green Lantern as much as we do. And actors that get up and do that are money. They're gold. It's the difference between um, fans giving... uh, Chris Evans and Chris Hemsworth a tongue bath and hating on Robert Downey Jr. because Downey basically has come right out and said, you know, they're comic book movies. They're not that serious. I'm an actor. (laughs) That's kind of funny because it's the same sort of thing that happened. um, I know that you guys aren't Doctor Who fans, but that same spectrum exists on Doctor Who is that uh, Christopher Eccleston played the Doctor for a single season. He's not a fan. He didn't grow up with it. But he was like, hey, this is an opportunity since I've been in a bunch of rated R movies to do something that will appeal to kids. Mm-hmm. I want to do that for a season. I did it. I had fun at times. <laughs> and now I'm done. I'm done. I'm moving on to other things. I don't want to appear as a doctor at conventions. I don't want to talk about anything other than the project I'm working on right now. I don't want to constantly be asked about something I have did more than 10 years ago. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have the current guy playing the doctor, Peter Capaldi, who did grow up as a super fan. And he's exactly what that fan base wants, where he goes on an Internet show from a hardcore fan base. And they ask him, what are the old school classic villains you'd like to have back on the show? And he spends 20 minutes answering that question. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And he tells you exactly why. Oh, they haven't used this one since the 60s. And this actor was there. And, oh, I I told them that we should do this thing here. And that was something that Tom Baker did once. And it's kind of weird because not those people aren't always going to be in a good thing. But it feels like you want to have this kinship with somebody who's only pretending to know the things that this character knows. Mm I'd rather get a good performance out of someone than their fandom be pure. And Harrison Ford is the best example of that. Mm, yeah. I don't think Harrison Ford spends a lot of time thinking about Rick Deckard, but his performance as Rick Deckard is great. Yeah. And that's all I want out of it. What's on the screen? I don't need them to be my pal. I'm not going to hang out and swap trivia with Harrison Ford. <laughs> but the fact that Peter Capaldi is both good in the role and knows all this stuff is a bonus. But mm-hmm. that's what it is. It's a bonus. I shouldn't expect it. No. The guy that you want to be really invested in the property is the guy that's writing it. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. You know, I don't need Benedict Cumberbatch to be a giant Sherlock fanboy. I need Mark Gaddis, his writer, to be one. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, you know. Well, let I want to explore that a little bit because there's this uh um who is the guy? Russell Davies, right? So he's the guy who was in Doctor Who did Doctor Who. He brought back Doctor Who in and, 2005. So this is I kind of wanted to ask you this and Russell T Davies is a great uh is a great example because he's someone who says that he's a fan, right? That he's a fanboy mm-hmm. and he's writing basically writing fan fiction for Sherlock. Um I view this this the the writer well, he's is not, Russell T Davies is not Sherlock. It's it's the new writer on on Doctor Who. It's um Stephen Moffat Moffat and uh, Mark Gaddis. Okay. So Stephen Moffat, one of the writers of the new Doctor Who, um, says he's a fanboy, basically, of Sherlock. He's the fanboy writing fan fiction, essentially. And for for my money, part of the problem of these Star Wars reboots were that the people who were writing it were too close to being fans. This is also the Star Trek 
Nemesis's problem too. People that are too close to being fans writing the material and it being too circle jerky. Um, I don't know. I would much rather have a filmmaker or a writer or both that are are secular that are out that are outside of this sort of fanboy loop. I think um, you meant they weren't a priest. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because I think they I think what they what they translate because you're obviously translating a work into another medium either it's a new series of films or a brand new medium translating onto the screen or onto the page. I would much prefer them not to have to feel the weight this compulsion to fan service um, when they're writing something. And I feel like this is part of the reason why I say BSG is probably the most successful reboot um, of, of any pre-existing franchise because they didn't care about salvage. They didn't care about fan service for the original series. They only needed to salvage what they needed to make a, a compelling setting to tell good stories in. Well, that case is there to be made, but I don't know that Battlestar Galactica is your good example of that because that was a show that lasted one season that nobody really cared about. Richard Hatch kept it alive by doing the has-been convention tour for years, <laughs> and he eventually finagled that into a guest shot on the new show. But really, the the example that you're making the case for is Star Trek. Sure. And that's um, the first Star Trek movie that was directed by Robert Wise, Star Trek yeah. The Motion Picture, was nothing but fan service. Right. That was right. Gene Roddenberry had been going to conventions for a decade, having smoke blown up his ass by fans who treated him like a prophet. And he gave them exactly what they asked for, right. and it's motionless. Yeah. It's dead on the screen. Now, the guy that came in from outside, Harv Bennett, was, you know, he came from action TV. He, he, his mission statement from Paramount was get this done on budget, on time, make it fun, make it something people will like. Don't get our place picketed by Trekkies. And he came in from outside and his radical idea was let's just fucking kill Spock. Okay. Right. If, you know, let's just do it. Let's let's go there. Let's make this really about something. And he gave us The Wrath of Khan, which is widely regarded as the best Star Trek movie. Yeah, of course. A, a Star Trek movie so good that Into Darkness shamelessly stole from it and, right. and made or, a and, really bad and honestly, remake of it. <laughs> almost every Star Trek movie since has been stealing from Star Wrath Trek of Khan. Nemesis stole from it as well. And, it's the same sort of format. And Bennett and Nicholas Meyer, who... who came on as the director both really understood that what they were doing was making a navy movie right they were right. making you know horatio hornblower i believe horatio they called hornblower, it. yeah horatio hornblower in space um the enemy below you know i mean for fuck's sake in the wrath of Khan, when the enterprise gets hit it lists yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. it goes it's over true. on its side it's because that's what happens yeah. when you know if they hit it another time they might have sank it <laughs> <You know? laughs> But it, but I mean I think these are these are uh, hopefully they're proving my point which is that it seems to be topsy turvy that the expectation is oh my god they should all be super fans they should know the ins and outs well, and they should tell the story that we've been wanting to uh, wanting them to be told when in reality I think the things we like best are the things where um, the genre flips like Alien and Aliens is a great uh, example would, where the story would is best served by not just having the same Ripley on another ship with the, with one alien with different people it's better served by making it a different genre altogether well I, you don't ever win 
by listening to the fans. No. You Hmm. don't ever win by letting the audience lead you. Your job as a writer is to lead the audience and give them enough of what they came for that they don't feel cheated, but you give them something new so that I hesitate to use the word art when we're talking about basically <laughs> commercial box office propositions. Sure, but, sure. But if you're not, that's the job. That's the job. It's possible to be a fan and still do your job. We talked about Nicholas Meyer. Nicholas Myers made his bones on the 7% solution, mm-hmm. and he's a huge Sherlock Holmes yeah. fanboy. Yeah. Um, if I'm not mistaken, also... Michael Piller, who was one of the writers and producers of Next Generation, was the guy who wrote that screenplay. Of the seven percent solution. No, Meyer wrote it himself. That was the deal. He, I'll give you the rights to this. I think Pillar me... was the producer, but I may be, Could I may be. be wrong. Yes, I think Could Pillar be. was the producer. Could be. Yeah. But I think there's a middle ground on this. Is that I want well, somebody the, to the middle ground is what I'm making the case for. Yeah, it's it, you know, Meyer loves Sherlock Holmes, but he was also a novelist before he did the seven percent solution. He knew what he he knew how to write a novel. Exactly. He wasn't you know publishing his his internet Tumblr blog and getting paid for it, which is. <laughs> You know, what people have the expectation of being able to do now. That it's the fan fiction wish fulfillment stuff is not the stuff that audiences want. They want to be surprised by things. They want to, and this is one of the things that I think makes George R. R. Martin as popular as he does, which is that he frequently straight out refuses to give people wish fulfillment. Sometimes in the opposite extreme, where he just <laughs> yeah. tortures these characters. But I think that you want to be surprised. You don't want to go into it and have every character that you deep down think these two should be madly in love. You don't want all of them to fall in love. You don't want the person always to get their revenge or always accomplish every goal that the character set out is their motivation you want to if you have it happen at all you want to have it happen in a surprising way or an interesting way and that i want a writer who comes onto a established property to at one time understand what makes this thing popular and what makes it cool and understand the things that make it something that has lasted to this point that we're even making another one of them and i'd like them to like it but i don't want them to be so married to certain aspects of it that they're not afraid to break parts of it and make new parts of it and i think like you said nicholas meyer and harv bennett were able to do that with star trek that they were like okay this is stuff that sort of has to change this is stuff that i can take something that's already there because before uh, they wrote the screenplay to Wrath of Khan, they sat down and watched every episode of the original series and they're like, what is the stuff of this that we really like? And how do we bring that to this new project? But they aren't like saying we have to explain every little tiny bit and fill in the gaps of this is why Spider-Man really doesn't like Reuben sandwiches and this is why Uncle Ben always wore a tie and this is why Batman doesn't like jazz. I mean, I don't <laughs> need to know that stuff. It's not important, but getting the is, char- the, is the answer to number three that he's a racist. I think that's clearly the problem. No. Um, <laughs> that's why he's a rich guy that goes out at night and beats up poor people. <laughs> he's essentially just... Try and keep up. <laughs> he's basically just Mitt Romney with a bat fetish and a military armory. He's like, oh, they're a bunch of takers. <laughs> Here's some trickle down. <laughs> yeah. That's what we're dealing with. No, I, I think... The stuff that you want to be important is the stuff that's in the DNA, not the stuff that's like the parsley. And there's a lot of fans that just get so caught up in the inconsequential stuff because I'm a fan of a number of things that I love to death. 
But a lot of the things I love, I know are inconsequential. Like, you know, I'm a huge Planet of the Apes fan. I love the character of Dr. Milo. I think he's great. I think you can tell some fun stories with him. He only exists because they want to have an excuse for why they fixed the spaceship. That is the only reason he exists. There's no other need for him. If uh, Cornelius had been a character who, rather than an archaeologist, had been an engineer, the character would not be in the script. And I'm fine with that. So I'm not going to demand that they get true every little aspect of Salminio's performance in another thing. There's just there's barely a character there that people have latched onto. And that's why I think the outrage over the expanded well, universe Star see, Wars stuff I've is so insane. thought that about Boba Fett. I don't understand the whole fan fetish that grew up around that character. Yeah, we were he, just talking about this he's, downstairs he's with Sam Mulvey. Yeah, yeah, he, he's, he, he just, has a couple lines, and, and that's he about cool. it. Yeah. He, he's a guy who looks cool. That's his whole power, that he's a competent, non-main character. And That's the same reason Wedge has a bunch of novels written about him, and Wedge is just an extra who's competent <laughs> Wait, enough back to survive. Up. Wedge has novels? Hell yeah, yes he does. There's a series of novels about Wedge, who's just an X-wing pilot Jesus. who just manages to survive all three yeah. movies. For, for Jesus me, Star, Pogo Star stick, Wars is I worse than Star, Star Trek. Trek was. was the master no. of giving totally unworthy characters no. their own novel. No. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that that beats. Star Wars is Damn. far worse because it's so so few so, such little material, and yet the the uh, the extended universe sort of uh, writerdom has to work try to do so much with so so little. Yeah, they plant. Somebody said, "I'm going to plant my flag, flag and wedge, and I'm going to write an entire twenty book series about him." And he's actually a really popular character, uh, even though he really doesn't have enough lines and interaction in the movie that you could really say that many things about him. Other than he's not cannon fodder. Okay, is this a Richard Hatch thing where the fans have latched onto him because he's been doing the tour? The guy that, that played the guy has done the convention tour and is out shaking the hands of all the act. No, is no, he still alive no. Uh, Dennis Lawson, who played Wedge. Um, is retired from acting. He's not interested in coming back for any more sequels. He's kind of done. He's like, hey, I did this thing a couple times. I have three lines per movie. I'm done. You mean they're not going to wheel him out with the rest of the cast of Star Wars and Force Awakens in an iron lung or wherever the hell else he is and be like, hey, we've got Wedge. Wedge is here. No, I think think he's done being Wedge. And what would he do? I bet it was offered. Yeah. (laughs) I guarantee you they they rolled an iron lung full of money out to him. (laughs) And, you know, if you want to do it, the money's there for you to take. And that's the beauty of being a minor character in Star Wars is that you're guaranteed you can always work the circuits uh, for the convention, and you're always guaranteed to get an action figure of the character you played. Because if you get an action figure of your character, you have to be a main character with any other franchise. But if you're like Snaggletooth, <laughs> the little guy who gets handed a drink by that gnarly bartender in Moss Eisley, you got a toy. <laughs> that, it's like all those bounty hunter characters who have no dialogue, who just are there to stand next to Boba Fett and look scary. They all have names and they all have toys. I know, like, <laughs> and I, they all have expanded universe comic books and novels. I know who Bosk is, and he's yeah. just a lizard guy in a flight suit. That's all he is. <laughs> this can't be Lucas, can it? He hates the fans. Uh, this was this was his sort of uh, his sort of. Uh, agree to disagree piece of all of the of licensing his workout but not ever wanting it to be real canon he just said i'm gonna give you the space to write your books do your role-playing games and uh 
uh, you know, and write your do draw your comic books. Well, why but, wouldn't he? It's but they'll but they're never. There, he basically says they'll never amount to anything. This is why. Well, they he's created. never that blatant. I guess the thing is that he, it's, he doesn't want to be. He doesn't want to be part of his official story. Obviously, that well, was explicit. The the part with it that I don't have a problem with him saying that is like if I'm going to do a series of movies, I don't want to have to be handcuffed right. by fifty novels that twenty people read. Right. Of the time I'm going to make <laughs> another movie, I don't need to try to reconcile this with this elaborate web of an expanded universe. And I'm going to say this to Star Wars fans and they're not going to be happy with it. You <laughs> you need to fucking hear this. You have been spoiled. <laughs> spoiled, spoiled, spoiled that every other expanded universe out there is about the extra adventures. These are lost episodes. If you pick up a Star Trek novel, 99% of the time it is not you know, this is how uh, Han Solo got his vest, or this is how <laughs> Lando lost the Millennium Falcon. It's simply the story of, here's Kirk and Spock, they go to a place, this could have been an episode that we didn't make. Where does it fit? I don't fucking care. <laughs> They've got the gold and blue uniforms on, so sometime during the original series. That's the whole thought process. Occasionally you do something about, like a prequel about Khan or something. But most of the time, you're just doing a lost episode. With Star Wars, the reason you've been spoiled is they go, okay, it fits in this timeline here, and this is a thing, and here's a consequence. This character is fundamentally different at the end of the story, and now these characters have kids, and these kids Kids will be have their stories continued in another Star Wars novel, and you can't just pick up a random Star Wars novel. You got to start at the beginning, and you've got to read fifty of them before you enjoy this one. And it's this huge, elaborate comic book web of stuff. And if you're crying about it now, you are learning the thing that comic book fans have learned a long time ago, which is occasionally this shit collapses, it gets rebooted, and they start from scratch. You still have your old books; you can still read them and enjoy them anytime you want. And it doesn't matter if they're canon to the fucking company that owns them. If they're your favorite book, you can still read it anytime you want, and it doesn't goddamn matter. Ooh. Please tell me when you edit this, Dun. you're going to put in a rising music. <laughs> it's going to be the bat- it's going to be the Battle Hymn of the Republic, is what it is. Yes. Oh my god! Because that's the only part that was missing. That was magnificent. Thank, thank you. <laughs> Oh, should we end on that? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> just, right. just Star Wars fans, just drop it and move on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Good back there. Sorry. Let him go. Stay on the leader.